Hey everybody, we are super pleased to announce our new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. The goal? Power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. And the best part? Marvel Strike Force just reached its six-year anniversary, which means free stuff when you sign up via our unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. Just complete each event, and you'll receive special awards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and every week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. If we have received a unique promo code for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL, M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Again, anybody uses that code, it is unique for all new users. Check it out. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, a podcast with gamers and the insane family at the table together. This is Anthony. This is Chris. And this is Daniel. And this is Drew. Welcome to the episode, everybody. Episode 47. We hope you had an awesome, wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, this is Thanksgiving weekend, so as you're listening to this, you're probably in the car on your way to buy some very expensive things that are entirely too cheap. So, good luck, Godspeed, hopefully there's some left for you. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about the deck building crisis expansion for the dc deck builder and that is going up against the legendary which was designed this way so now we have two cooperative um licensed uh, superhero deck builder games we're gonna ignore the third non-licensed original one even though it could possibly do it better um and this week we're gonna do the verses of the two major ones and that will be our feature segment this week. Because you can never have enough DC versus Marvel talk. <laughs> this is your fanboy special. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, first things first, we're going to hit up Drew for some uh, interesting stories for this week. Some good PR from the tabletop. Um, board games in the news, uh, magazines, television. Uh, speaking of television, everybody has talked about already the uh, South Park episode featuring... All these cool games in the background during that. It was, it was about addiction, that uh, playing board games is a good way to cure addictive behavior. Yeah, the freemium episode where you play those yeah. little free online app games or maybe you're playing Hearthstone or maybe you're playing League of Legends. <laughs> Not saying anybody here, but really all of us. And yeah, a little bit. But you see, that's why, that's why this support group, Board Gamers Anonymous, was founded. That's right. Use board games as a way to cure addictive behavior. No, that wasn't it. That was, <laughs> it that was, causes addictive well, behavior. We have our own addictive behaviors. <laughs> well, you're replacing... It's where the, the methadone of gaming. <laughs> there you go. The acquisitions may be more expensive in the short term, but you don't need as many of them in the long term. So. But you know what people... What, what really... and It caught your attention. I'm, it caught everybody's attention. This wasn't Monopoly and Sorry and all the Parcheesi and all those other silly games. They had some really heavy games featured in that. Um, quickly, the list. Zombicide, uh, Dead of Winter, King of New York, Mice and Mystics, Lords of Waterdeep, Merchants and Marauders. Heavy games all. And in fact, 
they had King of New York before most everybody else had it. It was on South Park. They were playing it. Uh, I know. I wanted to like go online and be like, come on! <laughs> so I want to know who the hardcore gamer is on their staff that came up with that list. Well, it's Trey or Matt. I mean, they write everything, so... It's true. Yeah. Especially everyone from Plat Hat Games must have been bouncing off the walls because that type of advertising is a extreme rarity. And their their games, while outstanding, are pretty small, especially in the marketing of uh, hobby board games. Yeah, it's a niche company in a niche market. So. But the hobbyists know those games. And oh yeah, 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 we know them well. Yeah, but, yeah. But here, some yeah, some outstanding uh, publicity for them. Um, see, the other thing that nobody seemed to notice that I caught was here's a little child in preteen stages playing board games with a senior citizen. You don't see that that often, <laughs> certainly not at your local game store. But uh, yeah, let's have more of that. That's cool. Great way to bring generations together. Um, Wall Street Journal. I just found out about this today, and I got to look up that Wall Street Journal article. It had a uh, an article for some reason that featured Looping Louie. You familiar with that game? Yes. yes. Talking about that game in Germany as a drinking game. I have no idea why the <laughs> Wall Street Journal will be reporting on that. Because they were drinking. Come on. <laughs> you missed the headline there, True. <laughs> but we're going to have to do a top ten list at some point down the road of, of great board games to, to convert to drinking games. If so. we don't black out in the meantime. <laughs> yeah. Or we don't end up in rehab. <laughs> Looping addictive behavior. I Let's swear it was for that. journalistic reasons. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, so we're going to bounce back and forth between TV and newspapers. Going back to TV, The Apprentice. We all know Donald Trump, The Apprentice. You're fired. That's well, England has a version which is actually better than the American version simply because it doesn't have Donald Trump in it. There you but go. I buy that. <laughs> it's got its own version of The Apprentice. This past week, they did a show where the teams were tasked with creating and marketing a board game. Hmm. And I'll do everyone a favor and just stop there. Don't don't reference it. It was a terrible, terrible episode. Uh, for, pe- for people who love board games, you realize these guys have no clue. Um, it's the sort of publicity which makes board gamers look really lame. And they're not. Uh, in fact, I'm going to post a link in my game notes or my show notes to uh, a, pod, a, a blogger I know, Tony Boydell, who's from England. He's a funny writer. He does a recap of it. That's all you need to know about the episode. Back to print. Rolling Stone magazine. Somebody on the Rolling Stone staff is a real hardcore D&D player, and he created a bunch of character um, descriptions for, for NBA stars as if they were... D&D players or D&D monsters actually actually characters I think it was uh, he created all these for I'll give you an example for Tim Duncan the uh, the future Hall of Famer uh, who wore the robe of epic defense you know it's, it, he knew how to the writer knew how to create D&D language for what's great about these basketball players Kobe Bryant he of the 17 intelligence and 6 charisma <laughs> had the short sword of backstabbing. Oh, <laughs> so, these are deeply personal. Yes. LeBron James, 17 charisma and the crown of hairline concealment. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Very clever Board game burn. <laughs> I know. I love it. So kudos to the writer of that, but I think he missed the boat in a, in a big way. Because if there's any professional sport that makes you think dungeons and dragons, monsters, it's the NFL. Yeah. yeah. Football. Yeah, that might hit a little too close to home right now, though. Oh, well, yeah. With actual monsters in the NFL. Well, think of the phrases that they use for teams. Um, the, the nicknames. The Crunch Bunch. Purple People Eaters. Uh, the Doomsday Defense. Monsters of the Midway. I mean, it just, it's just like, yeah, you could do a D&D Monster Manual, just on football players. Yeah. At some point, let's hope they do that. Oh, from our no-duh department. I love that department. Yeah, the no-duh. Those are guys are great down there. They're doing some great work, guys. Keep up. Keep it up. Um, I actually have two things. Uh, but one, one came from the Daily Nebraskan, um, the, uh, the newspaper of the University of Nebraska. They did this article, Everyone Should Unplug, Play Board Games with Friends. Right. So, and he's trying agree. to tell, <laughs> trying to tell college kids, hey, don't play that uh, video game anymore. Play board games because that always works. Yeah, but you know what? So going the opposite extreme, no less a 
no less a character reference, I guess you could say, than Will Wheaton wrote an article for the Washington Post, which basically said the same thing. Um, and it was his response to the whole Gamergate thing controversy. Anonymous trolls are destroying online games. That was the title of his article. Here's how to stop them. Now, I wonder what his suggestion was to get people away from video games. Teleport them out of there? (laughs) Tabletop. Play them on a tabletop. Isn't it funny the timing that he writes for the Washington Post right at the time that his video series is starting its third season? It's just so coincidental. (laughs) Yes. Isn't that incredible? I'll support him. I like him, so that's fine. But it's the Washington Post. That's (laughs) what's cool. Good for the hobby. He is someone now who has had such stature in the hobby that they can put his byline in the Washington Post for a, a guest article, which is really cool. Um, so that's the great thing. And the other, very simply, you, you remove this whole Gamergate controversy by playing face-to-face. That's, that's the big difference between video and board games. You have a lot nicer people to play with because no one's going to act like a jerk if you're staring at them across the table. Well, it's just basic human psychology, right? Like yeah. if you remove that, that anonymous nature of the conversation, you're actually interacting with a real human being. Yeah, that's what happens <laughs> all the time. I Percentages go up. <laughs> I don't think that's going to yeah. tilt the balance between video and board games, but, hey, you know, a little bit. So should we change our name, then, to Board Gamers Unanonymous? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. Well, you know, no one's ever anonymous. in You know, because you stand up like in Alcoholics Anonymous, you're telling everybody who you are. You're giving yeah. your whole life story. It's the opposite of anonymity is... So it's, a, it's an oxymoron, let's put it that way. <laughs> Leave it at that. Um, another student newspaper, um, University of Texas in Austin, had an article about student-created board game includes LGBT characters. You could say this is another connection to the whole Gamergate thing. The, the, the whole problem has been one of exclusion, where you have these male designers creating male-focused games. So it's interesting to have games now that are exploring other possibilities. D&D 5th Edition is another example of that, where the possibilities now are open to characters of different backgrounds, so yeah. to speak. And, I mean, that's almost essential, right? Because D&D, you're dealing with multiple cultures from radically different backgrounds, more different than our cultures are because they actually have racial divisions that are more than totally made-up social constructs, right? There are actual different differences. species, yeah. Yeah, different species of creatures wandering around, and the idea that they all share the same notions of gender, mm. it's almost... Certainly not true, right? Humans don't share the same notions of gender across culture. Throw in different species, and no way. Magical beings and creatures and half breeds, and yeah. So, so Dungeons and Dragons can do it successfully because that's not the message. It's not trying to create a message of diversity and inclusion. It's just woven into the fabric of the game. Yes, but it's if you look at the the player's manual, they they specifically refer to this that they want to be an inclusive community to everybody to enjoy this game and this larger yeah. hobby. And you know what? Sometimes you need to say that. Sometimes you need to just come up front and say, by the way, everyone is welcome. And that's really nice to say. They, uh, since this was based in Austin, obviously they had a talk with somebody from Steve Jackson Games, which is based in Austin, um, who acknowledged that the game with a message like that could be successful but still have to be fun. The hard part is taking a message, a game with a really serious message like that, and making it light and fun. Yeah, you can have LGBT characters, but how do you weave that into, you know, oh, this is a fun game, I'm liking this, without thinking about it. And you say it's in the dungeon, it's in the the manual, the player's handbook, but you don't think about it. You just, you're able to put on a different persona. So hopefully... Hopefully we'll get to the point where you don't have to consciously think about diversity. You just... Yeah, I think... I mean, we see this a lot more in video games where designers are starting to come along to this idea that there is diversity in our world and it should be reflected in the games that we play. So there's been some challenge and there's been some pushback with video games allowing characters to marry a same-sex partner. Yeah. And that's been wonderful that there's been a push for it. There's been some pushback. There's been some challenge. I know Nintendo's recently talked about that a little bit too. But the idea is not that the you know the idea is not that this should be inclusive, like as you say, Andrew, like it should be just be part of the whole realm. Yeah. But it should be something that you know 
up until this point, it wasn't built into the game. So right. it should be something that has to be noted that there are changes. You can do anything you want, anything you think is reflective of the character, and God bless. So, so one thing that's not fun that actually takes the fun out of games is when you try to modernize it and bring it up into... I'll, I'll give you an example. There was a, a, Met, a Metro Times in Detroit, a fellow called Michael Jackman, wrote an article, Who Ruined the Board Games of My Childhood? And it's basically all about the modernization that games, that the basic games, Hasbro games, Clue, Game of Life, are doing. Um, Do games really need to be updated? Do they really need to reflect? Like the Game of Life obviously has changed since we were kids. (laughs) Should you change it? You know, can families still have fun with a game like that, even if it was reflecting the 50s? I mean, it's hard to say without specific examples, but, you know, if you are playing the game of life and you choose either going to college or going getting a job, whereas these days you have to go to college and get a job, <laughs> yeah. so you need to do both, um, you know, it does, it does need to change slightly because thematically the game doesn't make sense if it doesn't play out well. Like, for example, like you were, you were just talking about the LGBTQ community if I can't marry someone of the same gender, it doesn't make sense when I'm playing the game. So, you know, Monopoly, you know, it needs to have some sort of reflection in the real world in order to capture me. Otherwise, it's just an abstract game. Well, the thing about life, because it's not written as part of the rules, if if you're driving along your little car, your little blue peg wants wants to get married, you can put another blue peg in there as your spouse. It it doesn't change the game. Um, That's what keeps it fun. You You can certainly add that in but what they're trying to do is like um, like the environment like pollution sure. so they've changed some of the spaces to say okay you've you've solved the pollution problem collect a certain amount of money part of the the problem that this writer is pointing out is is giving people an unrealistic impression of how life works that it's not about the greening of America it's not about solving pollution problems it's about making money see the focus is still on the capitalistic mm. aspect of it so by trying to bring it too modern, is it, you know, it's just supposed to be fun. It's, it's, it's not even realistic. The game of life has never been about real life. I don't think that, you know, just because it's a more realistic theme, it, it loses fun. Or if a message is in the game, it's, it's less woven into the craft of it. You know, like you're saying, you're saying that there are certain games where things are shoehorned in and become clunky because it's like you need to like in the game of life as you're driving the car you need to stop by and recycle your plastics and bottles and things like that but I don't think it's a problem because you know we still have to remember that a lot of these games especially the Hasbro mass market games are mostly geared towards children and teens and those things should be somewhat educational or somewhat hopefully positively you know, geared towards a more kind of happy society. So if it's too kind of like, hey, this is capitalism and you need to rape and pillage your neighbors in order to make as much money, probably not a good kid's game. (laughs) (laughs) Though life is one of those games where you could just add your own spaces on the board and have a lot of fun with it. So maybe we should try that sometime. That's that's what I found, watching TV, reading the papers, uh, all about uh, board games this week. All right, awesome. So next up, we're going to take a look at some of our acquisition disorders for this week. Acquisition Disorder Corner. All right, so for acquisition disorders this week, anybody got anything that they uh, need to pick up at Black Friday sales or, or haven't yet picked up at a Black Friday sale? <laughs> <laughs> well, I talked about uh, playing Smash Up Am I at the table last week, uh, and uh, this week my... My acquisition disorder is the pretty, pretty smash-up expansion, which is silly and absurd, and all the characters are hyper-stylized, super cutesy things, but smash-up has shown an ability to make consistently good quality games with a good sense of humor, and I think that this is going to be very fertile ground for them to, to do something silly and do something fun at the same time. I want to be the My Little Pony Ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be the... The cyber chimp unicorns. Okay, okay. <laughs> Maybe the zombie kittens. Zombie kittens, I like that one. Zombie kittens are awesome. <laughs> so my acquisition disorder is actually something I recently picked up, but you know, it does come from the 
darkest of places, AEG smash up the Big Geek Box. Now, the Big Geek Box is an absolutely brilliant idea, AEG. Great job. Beautiful box to hold all your different races of cards. I bought the box. It's high quality. It has space for everything. You know, this was the reason why I didn't pick up the Cthulhu expansion because I was worried about looking into the face of darkness and never escaping. I put everything that I own from Smash Up, which is everything, and there's still two full plus rows empty. You're going to make me buy every expansion now until the Armageddon just to be able to be a completionist and fill this box. <laughs> what are you doing? The, the box is too big. I, I mean, sure, I can't fit everything in the base box anymore, but I, I, I don't know. What is there, 400 expansions coming out to fill this thing? And yeah, I get it, AG. I'm going to buy them all now. <laughs> I have to fill this box. I don't know how, but I will clearly have to be buying expansions until the end of the universe <laughs> to fill this thing because it seems to take a countless number of expansions to fill the dark black box that is the big geeky box. I mean, sure, it comes with the geek race, you know, with the Will Wheaton characters from Tabletop, but that's not enough to fill the box. Not even close. <laughs> I don't know why you're doing this. But sure, sure. I'll, I'll keep buying. <laughs> the acquisition disorder will continue. And, <laughs> and I don't also know why you don't have a section for the little tokens. I mean, just kind of randomly. I have to throw them in there in a bag or something. But yeah, that's my acquisition now until forever. So <laughs> thanks, AEG. Way to go there. This segment sponsored by Smash Up. <laughs> no, way, to, way to crush my software. <laughs> publishers know how to sucker you in and, and keep you, keep you, keep you hooked, keep you coming back. You have to. That's marketing. Um, another company that knows how to sucker you in and hold you is Game Salute, and uh, now they're continuing their series of games based on the Princess Bride. I loved. I just love the concept of have fun storing the castle. Have fun storming the castle. <laughs> Have fun storming the castle. I know. It's it's just... And then you realize, yeah, that's a great theme for a game. And now they come out with another one, As You Wish. Another um, meme from the show, from the movie. And I can picture that as as a board game. Um, and I certainly want to try that out and see. I mean, it was fun, the first one, Storming the Castle. And I want to see where they go with this. In fact, it just creates this whole concept of taking lines from popular movies and making games out of them. <laughs> and I think they're on to something. Especially a movie that iconic has... I don't know if there's many movies that have has that many lines. Quotable lines. Just yeah. endless, that movie. Yeah, just, know. you know, if they make a good game around one of them, we'll be set. <laughs> no, I'm on, a, I'm on a, a real complicated app. Why, why would you do that, Anthony? <laughs> <laughs> why would you successfully make a game based on the IP that you paid money for? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. A, uh, a game called Inconceivable? That's brilliant. Yeah. I would play that. Um, but uh, you can take other movies. Who wouldn't want to play a game entitled You Can't Handle the Truth? <laughs> you know, there you go. It? It's a million-dollar idea, Drew. In fact, we're, no, we're going to have to pursue this. Okay. At some point, we'll have to do a list of the games top. based on classic lines from movies. So, And we'll it could be a that. top ten list that goes to 11. <laughs> 11. I'll make oh. sure it goes to 11. <laughs> but as you wish, that's what I'm looking forward to. Alright, cool. Uh, I got one this week, and it was just announced a couple days ago, and that's Imperial Settlers' first expansion, Why Can't We Be Friends? <laughs> so their expansion plans for this seem to be to release these small packs of about 55 cards, uh, a la Fantasy Flight. Um, so this one, it does not have any new factions, unfortunately, not yet. That's uh, weird. It's got new common cards, uh, new cards for each of the four factions, and a couple cards for the solo game. They're also adding a new effect called open production, where you can go to someone else's civilization and get their production, you know, depending on how you use those cards. Um, so it says January, but it's going to distributors right now as we speak, so you might see it before the end of the year, but it should be up pretty soon. Um, it's cool. I play this game a ton with my son. Like, I play it by myself. He ships over all the goods, but I've played it, you know, maybe a couple dozen times now. 
it'll be good to have new cards. <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> Give it a little more depth. Um, I'm personally looking forward to new factions when those start coming out, but I know like that takes balance and time and playtesting. Adding a few new cards to existing systems is probably a little faster and easier for Trevichek. Um, but hopefully he's got a few new races in the in the or a few new uh, civilizations in the works for next year. All right, so that's everything for acquisition disorders this week. Next up, let's take a look at what we've been playing lately. Kicking the habit. <laughs> On episode 24 of Kicking the Habit, we're going to take a look back at four campaigns that recently wrapped up, including Cycling Party, the most realistic cycling board game, Blockcraft, the block mining board game, Emogap, Interactive Museum of Gaming and Puzzlery, Flat Plastic Miniatures, and four brand new campaigns, which seem like original games that we already own, but alright, Moral Dilemma. Intervention, a party game for everyone's worst habits. Wordtov, Wordtov, the board game of dramatic reversals. And Twister City, a tongue twister card game that's actually fun. No, that's not my comment on it. You'll have to listen to the episode. That's just actually the title. So check us out on December 3rd, 2014. And I'll let you know if you should kick these games off, kick back and wait, or just kick them to the curb. the table this week um something i played was um like last week something i found in the collection of john mccallion that i've been uh inventorying um we're up to like 1800 games now um the end is in sight but he's, he has well over 2000 it's, it's quite the collection i came across uh the game power boats uh, a game I've been familiar with online. I play it on mastermoves.eu. And uh, it's a lot of fun in the digital version. But I, I just had to try it out. I enjoyed that game so much, I had to try out the table version to see. It's it's a modular board. You, you put it together in different combinations uh, for different games. The start and finish lines for the powerboat race is different each time. You have three buoys, three markers you have to go around. Um, so there's a little bit of fiddliness. There's some oddly shaped three-sided dice um, because you're only using the numbers one through three in your move and use different amounts of dice as you speed up and slow down. Um, it loses a little in converting you know, in the original tabletop version, but it's still a lot of fun. Race games always are. There's always a tension, um, and I think it, it, it holds up well. It was a fun game, a light, basically a light game, but... You know, worth taking the time to set up. Power boats. So I had a chance to play Five Tribes, the Days of Wonder new hotness. And Five Tribes, you know, has a, a, an interesting kind of feel to it. You're going to actually, instead of placing workers, you're going to displace workers and pull workers off these little tiles that make this giant kind of square board in a Moncala kind of way where you pick up all of the workers from a certain tile, place them in different areas, and then when you place the last worker of a certain color, you get to pick up all of those workers of those color and then use them for scoring opportunities in the game. Now, for me, the outstanding production, the outstanding component quality, the artwork, the theme, great. The game itself, though, is... It's kind of hard to say because... Depending on the placement of the meeples on the board, you could have a large number of rounds. You could have actually a short number of rounds. And, you know, it's kind of hard in that way because it's a very, it's very tight gameplay. When you pick up the gins and they give you a special ability, you're only going to be able to pick up maybe one, two, or maybe even at tops, probably three of them. And as you move throughout the game, you're trying to figure out strategy I don't know. It's it's very tight. It's a very short game. It's almost an anticlimactic game because I had the last play and it was pretty much me going, can I do anything here? You know, can I move? Hmm. No. I, if I move those there, nothing happens. I, I can't move it here. I can't move it there. And then at the end, everyone was looking around. We we're all looking at the board going, no, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. And there's a lot of little tiles in this game. So there's a lot of possibilities for you know, where to move your guys, but some of them are dead ends, and towards the end of the game, there's a lot of dead ends, 
and you know very much a part of the gameplay is you know who gets to go first turn, turn order in this game which you are paying victory points in order to be able to do that okay. which is brilliant yeah, yeah now yeah. in the the first game that i played I did not pay any victory points. I was happy to go either second to last or last. And based upon the gins that I picked up in the game, I tied for first place, which completely shocked me because, you know, people were paying a lot of victory points to go first. And when you go first, you're able to look at the board and go, well, this will do five points. This will do ten points. It's very mathy in that way because what is the best play there? But the downside of that game is, too, is once someone makes their move, the meeples are now rearranged. So if you had a, you know, an optimal strategy, that's now changed based upon where they place things and changes things up. So AP could really ruin the game. This is a heavy, heavy AP game for something that should not be AP because by the time it comes around to you, the meeples have all moved around. Not just someone took your spot on the board and therefore you have to take another spot, but now the meeple color has been rearranged. Could could this... I mean, I have a timer. I've yet to bring it to one of our sessions, but there's a four-player timer. Would it benefit? It's a, is it the kind of game where you could put a timer in there and pe- get people on the clock, make it more interesting if you keep the pace going? I don't know, because by the time it comes around to the third or fourth person, the options that were originally there, not only are they gone, but they have completely rearranged. So yeah. like in a, in a standard worker placement game, if you know the optimal spot is gone, the secondary spot's gone, at least you know just from looking at the board a third or fourth. In this one, you actually have to do the math as far as, I have five meeples, that's going to take me here, here, and here, but if I go here and here, but I can also go here and here, and yeah. it, it just, it slows down a lot. So you got to keep it moving. Right? You really have to, you have to keep it moving, but in a way, you have to still do the math in your head. So, you know, my big thanks to David for bringing this game out. It was a lovely game, but it's probably going to be a dodge for me, just because... It's, there's only so many times that you could sit down with this game and just get, you know, kind of full enjoyment out of it. That's a shame, yeah, because the game itself and the math and solving the puzzle of all that sounds like a lot of fun, but any game that gets that AP heavy drives me crazy. So no, I know I, I don't want to play this. I want to try with a timer. I, I believe in timers <laughs> in games. We want to try and... I'm on a mission or I'm on a... I want to bring that message to the the natives. <laughs> Maybe we start with a game that's not designed with AP in mind. <laughs> that's when you need a timer. That's I when I feel like it would make people mad though, because you're like, uh, I don't have time to see what all my options are. That's it. You got to go with your gut. Got to go with you. And just a final note, since Drew brought up natives, this game also does have some controversy because there are slave cards in this game, and the slave cards, you know, they grant you some, you know, extra ability here, but. They're actually depicted in the artwork as slaves with, you know, you know, chained up kind of thing. So it is, you know, really kind of startling that it's a cute, funzy, you know, Days of Wonder game with, you know, magic gins. And yet there are, you know, quote unquote brown slave people, you know, in this game that you're picking up to score special abilities and points, which, you know, it's going to bother you. It's not going to bother you. Personally, I didn't purchase anything from the board, so... Maybe that was the way I played the game out to kind of avoid that. But at the same time, it's something that game companies should take a look at in the future because it just wasn't necessary. Not that not that you should be offended or not offended or kind of take that controversy, but just wasn't necessary in this type of game. All right, so that's all the games we've been playing lately. Next up, we're going to take a look at our versus feature of the week. That's going to be DC deck building game Crisis Expansion versus Marvel Legendary. And now for the feature review. All right, for this week's Versus, we're taking a look at DC versus Marvel. Now, I say this because the two games that we're talking about today, Crisis versus Legendary, have so many of the same components, so many of the same mechanics, and so many of the same superheroes battling villains that this game, DC, or Marvel, which is best for you? Which one reigns supreme? Let's find out. Now, talking about both games, we can pretty much kind of put them together a little bit, and later on we'll kind of pull them back apart to see where they kind of separate. But these are both deck-building games. And by that, I mean you'll be starting off with a basic deck of cards, 
and buy that deck, you'll be able to purchase or take out villains in the game. Now, as the game goes on, you'll be able to either add those cards to your discard pile, which will eventually be shuffled into your main pile, and then eventually into your hand. Those cards will benefit you or hurt you as the game goes on, and the villains in this game cause devastation to players. So there's some good purchasing and there's some not good purchasing, but as the game goes on, the text on each individual card will give you some flavor and some theme about how the game plays, about how the universe plays, and aspects of superheroes in combat. Now, in addition to purchasing slash fighting these cards in the game, you will also be facing down the supervillains or slash masterminds in the game. Now, these are the ultimate baddies that you are trying to take down in the game in order to save the world. In addition to that, there'll be a scheme slash crisis that takes part in the game that will affect the global elements of the game. It might shut down characters. It might make villains harder to hit. It's just going to do something to mess with you a little bit. And part of your gameplay is going to be to deal with this global effect throughout the game. In the DC deck builder, you'll be able to knock it out and a new one will come out. In the Marvel game, it's going to be an ongoing crisis that's, that constantly affects you. So, as you're playing the game, you're building up a deck that becomes stronger and stronger, has special abilities and characters from various superheroes from the Marvel or DC universe. In a cooperative kind of semi-cooperative game because in the legendary version there is a part where you can actually score points to see who is the best amongst the best and in the dc deck builder it's a purely competitive game but with the crisis expansion it's purely cooperative there is no best of the best in there so that's a quick look at the dc crisis and marvel legendary let's see what everyone thought i want i want everyone to know right off the front uh, right up front that I willingly played a superhero game. <laughs> he took one for the so team, people. I can do it. He did not it. even complain the entire time. <laughs> that's oh, we, we had fun. That's how much he loves <laughs> listeners out there. He loves you guys. Hey, I'm willing to try everything once. And I didn't hate it. So that's wow. That's oh. the best. Uh... Go buy it now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, I mean, Chris, I'm going to have to disagree with you right off the bat, actually. You said these games were the same mechanics, the same stuff. I think they share a lot of the terminology, but for games that are both cooperative superhero deck builders, they are remarkably dissimilar, right? So in Legendary, you have uh, a scheme and a mastermind which stick around for the entire game and define the way that any individual playthrough will feel, right? Their mechanics will change the way the game plays, uh, and at the same time, right, you have a deck which is very modular, right? You build your uh, deck out of different villain groups, different henchmen groups. It gives you a, a sort of flavor to each playthrough that is ra rather unique. Um, when you play Crisis, however, right, yeah, you have supervillains, yeah, you have events, but you couldn't not have that in a superhero game, right? There's, right, if you don't have supervillains, what are the superheroes doing? I actually think that DC Crisis is more similar to its base game in the way it treats the supervillains right there. It's fighting through the stack to kill them. I mean, in that version, you don't get to claim them, sure, but ultimately, I don't think it's as similar to Legendary, uh, partially because both the crises and the supervillains in DC Crisis, they rotate through very quickly. And while you only use a certain subset of the cards every time to build a deck, the result is that you don't get that same feeling of flavor you do out of Legendary, right? With the Mastermind and their Crisis defi strongly defines the way an individual playthrough feels in Legendary. Uh, for DC Crisis, they aren't. They kind of feel same-ish because it's just a bunch of very quick-moving crises, a bunch of very quick-moving supervillains. No one sticks around long enough to give you a special flavor. So I, I think it actually plays very differently. See, for me, it plays almost identically. I think the DC Crisis game is just a, you know, they kind of copied and pasted. Yeah, it's true that the mastermind in Legendary and the supervillains 
they're different in the fact that the mastermind sticks around. There is a single mastermind that you have to knock out multiple times. So you're knocking out multiple cards, but it's still the same master villain. So you're right. There is more of a consistency of this is the evil that you're fighting and this is the crisis and it's a single crisis. In the DC crisis one, this is more along the lines of like playing the entire universe. You're playing all the villains. You're playing all the different crises. The death in the family, wave of terror. You're playing the alternate, you know, universe. So you're playing a lot of different things. And you're right. It's it's kind of quick. You're getting a little bit of a flavor and it's moving on. It's not it's not really held around for very long, but I did like the fact that with the crisis in the DC version, it really does have a thematic flavor to it. Um, when you're playing one of the crises that I really enjoy was the alternate reality where instead of um, knocking out villains, you're trying to knock out enough heroes. So that's a really different twist on gameplay that you often don't see, and I like that. Yeah, I mean, Crisis brings a lot of interesting flavor to the table, and all of those would have been great if they stayed around long enough for me to get a flavor of them, a taste of the flavor they're supposed to be bringing. But when we played, for instance, we knocked that out immediately. It hit the table, it was gone. Uh, it barely influenced gameplay. Another major difference is, in Legendary, there are always villains coming. There is always pressure on the heroes because the villain progression board will always be refilling. And DC Deck Builder, you have to draw villains from the deck for them to appear. Right? They have to show up from the main deck, which means that the pressure doesn't feel like it's on as much for DC Deck Builder as it does for me in Legendary. Yeah, I liked I liked the DC simplicity in a lot of ways, simplicity of gameplay, getting into it faster. But but Marvel really did a much better job at getting the tension right out of the gate and keeping it up. That I will admit that. And if you're going to have a cooperative game, you have to have tension on you from the very first moment or else it's just not going to be fun. Yeah, for the DC Crisis game, the timer is the deck of cards. So when the cards run out, you lose the game. So there are some crises that really were challenging. The final countdown where you're trying to knock out certain cards of a number so you have from two to seven that was a little bit challenging, and the deck was starting to kind of run through. The DC Crisis also has ways in which increasing the tension, increasing the, the, the hardness level. It does not have the progression across the board where villains are escaping. That's really nice to, to kind of play. But one of the things I do really love about the DC version is the artwork. The artwork's outstanding. It's all different on the cards. You know, I mean, there is some kind of copies when it's the same similar card, but it's dynamic. Whereas at least the original Legendary had that very standard artwork and it just had the different border around it. I think they finally listened to fans a little bit and they changed that up a little bit in the later expansions. But this is the only, the first pack. It's pack one. So we know that there's going to be other packs later. And, you know, by chance, if you weren't able to complete a crisis very quickly... You, it could hang around for a while. So it's a lot of quick hits versus a long, long game. And that's really my problem with Legendary. At some point, you want to le- you want to stop playing this game. You know, Legendary takes a very long time to set up. It takes a very long time to play. And in some ways, it's not thematic because you're putting together a number of different cards in your hand that may not mesh together. DC does play a lot quicker, as Drew was saying. And sometimes you can build a deck. Yeah, I mean, well, one of the reasons I'm probably being so hard on Crisis is I like DC Deck Builder better than Legendary, I think. And I was had very high hopes for DC to produce a, uh, a co-op game that could officially knock Legendary out of its place in my collection, and they just didn't, right? They have more thematic cards that should have been a, you know, something that accounted in their favor, and it kind of does. They let you have a superhero big card that you play that gives you special powers. That's something Legendary doesn't do. But when it comes to in developing a, the tension required for a good co-op, they just don't do that, right? It can be hard to win, but it's never tense. It's never nail-biting. It's never walking the army of villains march across the space. There's no feeling of it ratcheting up, right? There's not the pandemic. You see the outbreaks happening. You see the spread. There's not any of that. Okay, guys. Then here's the big question. Once, once a generation... A rift in the fabric of the universe opens up, and characters from one universe mingle with another. The crossover. Is there a way to cross over certain features of DC with certain features of Marvel? 
like offset the weaknesses of one with the strengths of the other. I think it'd be easier to work with legendary as a base. I think it's a better a ba better mechanic for a, co a cooperative system. If you took the large car the hero cards from DC Deck Builder, that would be a major advantage because it would give you a feel of playing a certain power set. Uh, I think if you took the the varied artwork from DC Deck Builder and the uh, more varied approach to what cards do, right? So everything in DC Deck Builder, all the cards are individually thematic, right? Flash draws cards. Superman destroys weaknesses. That would be great. Yeah, and I think you know you mentioned this earlier. There is another co-op superhero game, you know, Sentinels of the Multiverse, that is a pure co-op game that I think, as we, we mentioned in the past, may be the best superhero co-op game. Is the best. But, I mean, it's, it's, not, a, yeah. it's not a deck builder in the same way, right? It's You have your limited deck. Yes. It's, you, no. it's already started, and I actually, for that reason, don't like it as much. I like deck building as a mechanic. Okay. Yeah, uh, I think deck building is the biggest weak point of both of these games. Really? As cooperative games. Okay. That's where it has the problems, is in the deck building. Hmm. So... Like, well, that's why you have trouble with the tension in the DC, and that's why in Legendary you can go for three hours and you can have these turns where you don't do anything because things don't match up with what you're doing just because you're shuffling cards and drawing them. Yeah. Um, yeah, as far as a deck builder is concerned, I think DC works a little bit better because you can build, like, if you have Batman, you can purposely purchase equipment, which is going to benefit his power, whereas when you're playing the Marvel Legendary, it's a little more challenging because there's two currencies, right? There's the purchasing and there's the attack. So maybe you have your hand and you have a, a you know three of one and four of another, and it just happens not to really have anything on the board that you can really do to either knock some knock a villain out or purchase a hero. There's a lot of hands in Legendary where you're not doing anything of significance. I mean, I think DC is a better deck builder, but Legendary is a better co-op. That's that's going to be my my come down here. I just that's fair. I mean, and this is a. It's to be fair to DC, they're hacking on a co-op mode. It's not like it was designed with yeah, co-op in mind. True. Yeah, but if you can't do it well, don't do it. Right? Mm. Uh, if you can't make it tense, you know, tense. If you can't make it a good co-op, then just keep not making co-ops. Right? It's not like anyone put a gun to their head and said you have to make a co-op here. You can't keep making competitive games. Just, I mean, it would don't. be an ideal situation, like Drew was mentioning. If you did have like the War of the Rings, right? If you mm -hmm. had a, if you had all the Green Lantern mythos, all those different kind of universes come together, and you just play that instead of just having it come out, you play a little bit of it, and you kind of move on. Yeah. You probably will like that a lot better, right? Oh, absolutely, right. If you got more flavor from these from the villains and the crises, there would be uh, it'd be much better game. Uh, yeah, I mean, all these crisis cards are basically like events from yeah. the DC universe. You yes. have the death yeah. in the family, you have identity mm -hmm. crisis. Uh, Rise of the Rot. A lot of these are more recent than others, but some of them are pretty iconic events from the from yeah. the multiverse. I mean, well, it's a great way to point. Like, hey, remember when we wrote that comic called A Death in the Family and it was really good? It's great, but it doesn't give you much, right? The game doesn't. Yeah, I'd like to play the story of the death in the family. Right. So if you, I mean, like if you poured it over Legendary's treatment of the supervillains and the schemes, right? If you played the death in the family arc. In crisis, that would be way more compelling. Uh, and also, you have to find a way to make the villains more aggressive because while the crises prevent, uh, present uh, uh, obstacles, they're static obstacles. They don't come for you, right? They're just sort of sitting there as the timer runs down. And losing by timeout is the most unsatisfying kind of gameplay for me. I want to feel like in a co op game, I want to feel like the game is coming for me. Right? It's not just waiting for me to run out of time, it's coming to get me. Sure. I think one of the other challenges with Legendary is, is everything has to be aligned perfectly in order to have a good co-op game. You have to pick the right you know, villain, supervillain, mastermind, to go along with the crises, to go along with the right packs, to go along with the right heroes that you're choosing. I've played multiple games of Legendary where... You know, someone picked a tech character, and then no one else picked tech characters. And that character only benefited off other tech cards. Or picked an X-Man, and no one else picked X-Men. And you're like, I really can't do much. And now I have to do not much for three hours. And just, so, But on, on the reverse side, there sometimes the, other, the opposite happens, where it's a perfect storm of the heroes you put together, and you just blow through a game in 45 minutes. And you're like, 
wow, that was super easy. We never, we were never challenged at all. So, you know, there's wild swings in Legendary. Yeah, I mean, well, I actually would not cash that out as a disadvantage. Uh, the way I picked that is Legendary is a cooperative game that can vary in difficulty based on how you set up the basic. And usually that's a merit for a cooperative game, right? You can make it easy by picking, what, Red Skull and a bunch of overpowered superheroes, or you can make it hard as, as hard as you want, right? And that type of difficulty variation is usually, I think, a merit for a deck builder. But I don't think that's a, pur- a I don't Sorry. think that's a purposeful thing. I think it, you know, I'm sure that if you go to Board Game Geek, somebody put together a list of things that, like as you said, are from like zero to fifty. <laughs> but this is more of a coincidental kind of putting some things together that seem cool. Which Legendary is like, hey, you can play with Captain America and Wolverine. They won't work well together, but you can do that. And it's like, <laughs> ah, all right, yeah, I guess so. I mean, that's a little problematic, but you know, as Anthony was saying, you know, the the Crisis one is kind of a you know, uh, add-on mod, yeah. you know, to an already very good light deck-building game, whereas the uh, Marvel Legendary is a co-op game. But I also want to mention, which I talked about very briefly, the chem- semi-co-op part of it, which I can score more points than you and, and kind of have an additional win, which honestly is incredibly stupid because now... I mean, I know there's some games that play this a lot better, like Dead of Winter, but I'm not going to do what needs to be done to help the team in order to score two or three extra points to say I'm the winner. I mean, it's almost embarrassing at the end of a game if you lose, but you turn around and go, but I had the most points. And everyone goes, you really need to leave. (laughs) We don't want to play with you ever again. I've never had that problem with Legendary. I just don't bring up that rule and we choose not to play by it. I do think that's a bad rule. I don't think it should be there. I mean, you could do the same thing with the Sig Deck Builder. I don't know if there's a rule in the rule book like that. but Sure. A lot of co-op games, though, have scoring in them somehow. Like Robinson Crusoe has scoring. Don't, yeah. don't play with scoring. Yeah, it's for the people who don't really like co-op games. Yeah. Um, with the exception of Dead of Winter has a... Yeah, yeah but it's designed with it in mind. Yes, yeah, I agree. So that's fine. Right. Some people believe in the first among equals uh, theory, yes. you know, which is fine if it's designed that way. If you design a co-op and at the end you're like, oh, how do we pick a winner? I don't know, points of some kind. <laughs> um, all right, but overall, I think we have a general sense of what everybody's opinion is, but what, you know, versus, got to pick one. Uh, so Legendary versus the Crisis expansion specifically. Yes, the co-op versions. Legendary. Legendary is a much better co-op game than DC uh, the DC Crisis is. Uh, and I feel kind of dirty saying that because I like DC Deck Builder better than I like Legendary. Crisis is worse than the core set for DC Deck Builder, I think. And it is worse a worse game than Legendary. It does not do the basic things a co-op does. It does not create tension. It does not have the game coming after you. And it doesn't really have flavor that varies from game to game. Which is just sad because there was so much potential there. So, well, I, if I had to play another game at knife point or gunpoint, uh, it would be <laughs> the, the DC. If you could show me a, a version, a variation we haven't played yet, that will increase the tension. It's I like a game... If I'm going to have to play a superhero game, one we can get into quickly, put away quickly. But it does, I agree with Daniel at that point, you've got to have more tension in. Um, I don't like either of these very much. So <laughs> uh, it's, I don't know, Legendary is too long. And I've had a couple situations where it was put together poorly. Which kind of comes down to whoever's running the game, I guess. you got to coach people a little. But at the same time, it's supposed to be picking a random villain. You're supposed to be building it that way. So if you're playing the game the way it's written in the book, and that happens, that's a mark against the game um it just takes too long like an hour and a half of that would be fine three hours it's just it's a nightmare uh the crisis expansion i probably liked it more but it also seems like it's gonna run kind of long we played i don't know an hour in the one game we were playing and it was not even halfway done uh and there isn't enough tension there i don't think um thematically it's more interesting maybe just because i knew all the events they were referencing but they don't necessarily play through the game, like Daniel was saying. So I don't dislike it, but I wouldn't buy either of them. And I'd probably pick up Sentinels, which I know is not a deck builder, but that's my favorite superhero, superhero co-op by a mile. So. It's a good game. I, I'm having a really hard time with this. I do agree with Daniel that Legendary mechanically is the better co-op um, deck builder game. But 
um, I agree with Anthony where, you know, the crisis, the DC crisis game is a lot more fun and, you know, it does play a lot better. I mean, I've, I've had some, some really sad, boring, you know, scenarios with legendary that I'm just like, I typically don't want to come back to legendary, but I can completely understand that the DC deck builder, the crisis expansion doesn't go far enough to dethrone it as the co-op, you know, kind of superhero game. And it's such a hard kind of back and forth that I'm not really sure where to go. But to be honest, I'm going to I'm going to end up with Drew, because in the end, if I'm playing a co-op game that neither does one really well, I want to go with the one that's shorter. <laughs> wow, that is the most damning by phrase ever. At least it didn't take too long. It's like that's like what you say after you get a dental procedure. <laughs> I mean, they're both fine kind of games. I I admired greatly Marvel Legendary when it came out. I am more of a Marvel fan by far than I am a DC fan. So my fanboy wants to pull me over and say you know, let's go legendary. You clearly have more than enough comics to validate that. But at the same time, DC, the, the base game of the deck building for DC is just a lot more fun and quicker. The Crisis expansion doesn't accomplish everything, but it's quick enough, it's fun enough, and if I if there were two games playing at two separate tables, it would have to be the Crisis expansion. Okay, valid point. I think the problem here... Is um, it's all about the IP and not so much about the game design. I wish they would spend more time creating good designs for IPs like this. Well, yeah, I think the, Legendary has a good core design. It I does. just I haven't. It's one of those games, like Chris said, where you can have a good play and it can be a lot of fun and it works perfectly, or it can go poorly. And it's just for me, it's been fifty fifty. And if a game is fifty fifty poor experience, I'm going to avoid it yeah. because there's a fifty fifty chance that I'm going to have a bad time. Um, if it's a pe- group of people I like and want to have, you know, hang out with, it's a game that I want to like, so it's a game that I'd be willing to play again. I'd probably not play the Crisis expansion again just because there wasn't a ton to it. Not because I dislike it more than one or the other. It's just, it was, hey, I did that. I'm done. Uh, let's play the regular deck building game. It's a lot more fun, and it's quicker, and it's more competitive, and it's designed for this. So. Yeah. And I think the the problem for me, more than more than anything we talked about just briefly, was there's going to be more times in Legendary where you're just going to have a dead hand and you're not going to be able to do anything with it. And if you're waiting for four or, four or five other people to take their turn, that's kind of really crushing. It doesn't. It's not fast enough in that way. You know, I'm not sure about that, though, because the crises require very specific solutions in DC Deck Builder. Sure. Yeah. And so there are times, at least when I was playing against the Flash, so I had all my draw card abilities, where I'd have 30 power and nothing to do with it. I'd just look at the field and go... Uh, all right. Yeah, I, that was frustrating. That one crisis we had where it blocked all equipment. And I'm like, yeah. all right, guys, well, I can't kill any villains until we get rid of that crisis and because I'm had, Batman, so... And, <laughs> and neither of us had equipment, so we had to tinker with that. To be fair, though, and, and I agree with that, hmm. The but it's thematic in the way that that villain shuts down equipment because that's what that villain does. So, like, with the Justice League, sometimes the lesser powerful superheroes are necessary in order to gain victory because, you know, maybe that character's magic and magic is super effective. But it's not quite thematic, right? It's not that you call Batman to do something and then everyone else has to do the exact same thing as Batman at the same time, right? Batman solves Batman's problems, right? Right, so <laughs> that's our new meme. <laughs> right, exactly, right. When you call Batman to do a dete- you know, world's greatest detective thing, it's not like he and Green Lantern, and The Flash, and Superman need to all independently solve the crime and come together. And that's what DC Crisis does, because each player has to make a resolution condition at the same time for a lot of these crises. And that is not thematic, right? If you wanted to be thematic, it could be only one player, because Superman comes in and takes care of the problem. But you can, in a DC one, you can still buy cards, or you can still knock out villains, whereas the Marvel game, it's completely possible not to be able to do either. Yeah, but buying a card that isn't useful 
isn't isn't really doing anything. <laughs> Still doing something. All right, guys. Condition. So like all DC versus Marvel conversations, <laughs> this will carry on long after the recording stops. One un- non-partisan note here: Legendary, I think, is less sensitive to the number of players you have. If you have Crisis, it plays much better the more people you add. I think. So we I played two and three player versions. The three player version was much more interesting, much more dynamic, and much faster moving. The two player version ended up being very meh, sort of slow and sluggish. So I suggest in playing Crisis, if you do play it, with more people rather than less. I think Legendary runs about the same. Actually, if you go too many with Legendary, it starts fall, falling apart. And I'll also give a nonpartisan quote to kind mm-hmm. of bring the piece. As Anthony said, Sentinels of the Multiverse is awesome. Yeah. So it's not a deck builder, mm-hmm. and some of the art is kind of sketchy and a little odd and a little you know watered down, but the mechanics are brilliant in that game, and it does kind of give you the beautiful balance of having a villain fight the entire time but having different things pop up crisis wise that pop in and out Sentinels is a fine game it's just a different category yeah yeah it's a completely different category and yet it still won our verses somehow (laughs) (laughs) Gravwell guys Gravwell is the best cooperative superhero (laughs) we're off the rails now Uh, that's it for our verses feature this week Obviously, we had something a little more contentious than usual, but it's it's a fair comparison, and I think it's something people are going to ask a lot about, especially if people have had trouble with Legendary. This is not over, Daniel! <laughs> it is not. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is going to be the new Galaxy Trucker review. <laughs> um, but next up, let's take a look at our final round with Drew. Oh, we stopped talking about superhero games again? Okay, good. Now I'm back. Um, in light of all the discussion we've had between Marvel and DC... Um, and the endless supply of games based on those IP, I thought our final round could be IPs that you would like to see more of in board games, not less of. So in this idea of IPs you don't see enough of, you want to see more of, my favorite is Alice in Wonderland. I'm not talking about Disney Alice in Wonderland, but the original. Lewis Carroll was a game inventor, for crying out loud. And why we don't see more games from his property... I have no idea. And it has beautiful characters, richly defined characters, uh, living in a whole other universe, a whole other world. Um, heavy on mathematics, but very clever wordplay. There's a lot of directions you can go in with that IP. I want to see more of it. Well, talking about the Marvel and DC universe, I often think about one of the greatest comic book writers from both of those universes, which is J. Michael Stravinsky, who you probably better known as the creator of Babylon 5. Now, Babylon 5 is this outstanding sci-fi opera. If you haven't caught it, you must check it out. It's revolutionized everything about sci-fi on TV. It was the first series that had these major arc over five years in which it kind of developed characters and stories kind of played out. And it was just outstanding. It's probably my favorite television series of all time. And it's not to be missed. Babylon 5 did have a CCG at one point. It also did have a tactical war game that was really outstanding. But beyond that, there hasn't been anything Mm. from Babylon 5 for a decade and more. And this IP has tremendous depth as far as the diplomacy, the backstabbing, the sci-fi lore, the ancient races and gods that kind of, you know, play out in this universe And it's just there's so much wonderment to this game that, you know, you can kind of go endlessly. There's games and games and games out of this. So Babylon 5 is absolutely the IP that really needs to be out there in our gamer world. So I missed that. What was what IP did you? (laughs) (laughs) You really love that, don't you? I love Babylon 5. I am a huge Babylon 5 fan. All right. For me, it's a. Is it Babylon 5? It's not Babylon 5. Could, could, could it be Babylon 5? It probably is not. Oh. I've never seen Babylon 5. Oh, no! I was a DS9 guy, so... Uh, I love DS9, too, but DS9... I know. Uh, they're the same story. It was ripped off of Babylon <laughs> 5, so... Yep. Wait, but I thought that was Stargate. No, um, no, no, no. Battlestar <laughs> Galactica? We're down the 90s sci-fi tunnel. Um, <laughs> I'm going a completely different direction. The IP I would love to see more of, and it's actually a collection of IPs, is... Uh, Basically anything by Nintendo. But hmm. if we're going to get more specific, I would love to see a board game based on like The Legend of Zelda that's not Monopoly. Because come on, that's the best you can do with that? Monopoly? Come on. 
or the Pokemon board game, which again was just like garbage. Yeah. And then the Pokemon yeah. Monopoly, Ugh. also garbage. Mario Chess, come on, Nintendo. They could do better than that. Yeah. <laughs> so there, there are like little, really cruddy board games floating around with Nintendo IPs that obviously have much broader appeal, so they make more money. But if you're going to do it, give the IP to like Fantasy Flight or even Cryptozoic. Mm. I mean, they could do something with it. Just give it to someone who will do something. And I want to see a Legend of Zelda board game, or even a Mario board game, would be awesome. Or like we talked, like we talked about battling superheroes, like a Smash Up, you know, Smash Brothers kind yeah. of. That would be awesome. They're, Smash Brothers. They're getting yeah. there too because they 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 jumped on this like electronic toy bandwagon now. So next week they have the Amiibos coming out, which I guess last week if you're listening to this, and those are basically they interact with the 3DS or the controller for the Wii U, and it'll do things in the game, including a board game in the new Smash Brothers. So, they're thinking in that way, and yet they won't do it! Come on! <laughs> Even Mario Party. Mario Party is already a board game. Just make an actual board game out of it. So, for me, it's going to be Stephen King's A Dark Tower series. Ooh. The Dark Tower. Uh, yeah. and, and this series, for those of you not familiar, familiar with it, is an epic. And I mean an epic, not it is epic, but it is an epic. <laughs> as in it is an elaborate story taking place in you know, an adventure of... It is an elaborate adventure story taking place in a world with a full mythos. It begins in media race, right? It actually fits all the classical definitions of an epic. And it is deep. It is insightful into the human condition. It is fascinating. And it is full. And it has barely been touched. I think there was a role-playing game set in the Dark Tower universe that did not do very well. They're working on a TV show, though, right? I feel like HBO or Showtime had like work were in development on that. There's been a lot of attempts to develop that into either a television show or a movie, and just don't end people it because the ending was like, over again. Yeah, it's a contentious ending, right? Yeah, but it's it's absolutely fantastic. I think there is tons of material to work with in there, and so you can give it the full Cthulhu treatment. You know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could really pull out a lot of what's in there. There's a lot of good stuff. Yeah, um, any one of those books could stand alone as its own game. Absolutely, yeah. Wow, all right, thank you. So, a lot of potential for the future. I hope we get to see some of these games. Yeah, I, me too. That is our final <laughs> round. All right, so that's everything for this week. We hope you are having a wonderful weekend, a wonderful Thanksgiving with your family, and that you are listening to this podcast around a fire with your fresh Black Friday purchases. Uh, that's everything for us this week, though. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, at DJ Podcast, on Board Game Geek, check out our guild, and BoardGamersAnonymous.com. That's everything for me. This is Anthony. This is Chris. This is Daniel. This is Drew. And until next time, we'll save you a superhero identity to battle the Black Friday crowds. That would come in handy, yeah. <laughs> I got bruises, man. <laughs>